0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. CSB is committed to improving the financial well-being of local small businesses through financial education and banking services. Learn more at cambridgesavings.com. Member
1: FDIC.
2: This is Boston Public Radio. Today we're on tape bringing you some of the best author interviews. We begin with George Saunders, who joined us to talk about his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. We begin with Saunders explaining the premise of his
3: book and what exactly being in the Bardo means.
1: So for those who don't know, what is Bardo,
3: please? The bardo, it, bardo is a Tibetan word that means transitional state. And usually it's used to talk about that state that exists between the instant of your death and whatever happens next. So say reincarnation. Uh, so yeah, so it's kind of just that realm that we don't really know about but that might be a little important.
1: Okay. Yeah. And and it, it tell us um Much of this is set in the Bardo. Explain to people. Yeah, so
3: what happened was, in in, the true story, in 1862, Lincoln's beloved son passed away, and there were reports in the newspaper that Lincoln had been so grief-stricken that he actually went into the crypt, quote-unquote, on several occasions, and somehow interacted with the body. To hold him. Is that what the stories were? uh, Yes. You you heard a variety. Some was just to to stroke his hair, some to look upon the body. So I heard this way back when, uh, when our kids were little, and it was during the Clinton administration. And so I thought, my God, first of all, how does a president leave the White House alone? That's one. And second of all, ah, you know, the terrible pain of that. Uh, so I just kind of put that in the bag of stuff I would like to try to write about someday. Uh, but it, it's tough material. It's, it's dark. Uh, it's also very earnest. So I kind of just put it aside for 20 years, and it kept bugging me. And so in 2012, I gave it a try.
2: Why did you put it aside for 20 years?
3: Well, my, my work is mostly kind of sci-fi, dystopian, funny. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, I know uh, that,
2: but I mean, really as relates to our conversation with Gary, Right, no, I, I love that ago. conversation. Yeah.
3: But, but then, so uh, there was just a little squeamishness that I had found a comfort zone in which I was having p- some success, and I felt that this was going to require more straight writing than I felt I could do. In other words, I, I didn't think I could find a prose style that would come alive
0: in well, the story. Well, th- this
1: is a totally different prose style, which took me, yeah. dimwit, a while to figure <laughs> out. I'm, I'm thinking, why is he doing this? Tell people how you basically have these these footnotes and then you realize that these are the people that right. are in the bardo, but it, it, it's like a collage.
3: Yeah, P- part of the fun for me was, okay, if you're going to write about the afterlife, it would be pretty weird if the afterlife turns out to be exactly what we think. You know, hi, St. Peter, you know, where are my wings? <laughs> so I love the so idea you know, that...
1: I, I'm hoping <laughs> they're going <laughs> to be we're, we're all hoping.
3: That. Actually, there's a wonderful Stanley Elkin story called the conventional wisdom and that's the conceit is a guy dies and he goes up and there's a pearly gates and, and he sees saint peter and he says i think i'm gonna like it here and saint peter says go to hell <laughs> yeah, yeah. god but, but you know, so i thought part of the the, the fun would be to make a, an afterlife that was a little freaky you know that wasn't uh that wasn't what you expected and also that the reading experience itself might be a little bit destabilizing so by a lot of trial and error i came up with this way where there's a Something like 250 monologues in the book by 166 different speakers, but the attributions are given at the end. So I think often pe- people are telling me they're reading, they don't quite know who's speaking, and the first 15 pages are a bit of a challenge, you know, knock you off your feet, and yes. hopefully that pays off at the end. But you know, the, begin- jo- the beginning
1: story, which is a, a, a beautiful story that until the poor guy gets a beam <laughs> on his head and kills him. Tell you gave me, it away. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. No, no. Well, it's so early in the book. Just tell people that opening, that opening, uh, I guess you call it a chapter, yeah. of the well, guy that marries the uh, younger woman. Yeah, we
3: just hear a voice of this guy talking and he's saying, you know, I, I uh, w- married this beautiful younger woman and I know, and then she didn't love me. She, in fact, she was kind of Repulsed by me, and I know you think i prevailed on her, but i didn 't I just waited i just of course any gentleman would, and then I, we became good friends and uh, a couple months later, she gave me a gentle signal that it was time for us to consummate the marriage, and then the next day, he gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> and so winds we'll up in we'll the in Yeah, yeah. George with with a very large member. Yeah. I, got, I don't know I can say that on the radio. But.
1: Yes. But well, you have a lot of um, a lot choice words. words. So I, think
3: that's
2: yeah,
1: it's, it's, I guess we'd say R-rated for some of the language. R-rated? Okay, so R-rated. George,
2: Mem- members, okay. The, uh, like any historical novel, there's a blend of fact and fiction, but... Is that diceier in 2017 than it might have been had this come out in 2015 when we're living in an era that is a I've, mix I, of fact and fiction? I've heard that,
3: but I, I feel like we have to be really strong in the distinction because in a work of art, you pay your money, you walk into mm-hmm. the thing labeled novel, and you were playing a game together that, that involves a lot of gamesmanship and fun. And the whole point of that is to spit out some beautiful transcendent moment for you, the reader. It's kind of like when you know, you're telling your kids a ghost story and you say... Uh, and it happened in this very room. Well, they know that it didn't, but the idea that it did is it makes the story better. So that's one thing. But when you're on the podium at the White House and you, know, and you say A and you know B is true, that's a totally different thing. No, I, I get intellectually, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, I get yeah, yeah. the distinction. But yeah. it is
2: odd that it – or maybe it isn't odd that it – emerges
3: in a time when that's what people yeah. are obsessed with yeah.
2: virtually every single day. Well, and in the
3: fiction world, I mean, one, there's a really wonderful book by David Shields called Reality Hunger. And what he says is that fiction itself has been a little bit marginalized uh, somehow around this issue, that people are hungry for fact. Mm. So um, this was sort at, at the time I did it, this was my way of kind of bolstering up the historical truth uh-huh. to make it more shapely. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I didn't feel any problem at all until the alt facts conversation. Yeah. I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> oh,
1: but, but you're also tackling some of the, the big issues everybody does is worry about. And by the way, I should say again, George Saunders is here with us, and the book is is Lincoln and the Bardo. You're you're a Buddhist. I am. And I try you, to be. You you talked about uh, this incident on an airplane yeah. uh, that kind of freaked you out. Tell people what happened.
3: Yeah, well, I was coming back. I was on a book tour like this one, and I was. Uh, coming out of Chicago, heading home, just reading a magazine, and we took off, and all of a sudden, it was like somebody had pulled a minivan into the side of the plane, and you just get that moment like, oh, geez, you know, and I thought, if I don't, if I don't close this magazine, this won't be happening, and then black smoke started coming out of oh those air things, and there was a girls' softball team in front of us that just started panicking. The plane suddenly dropped and, the, and there was silence, and then the pilot came on, and in a reassuring voice, I'd stay in your seats with the seatbelts
4: on, like screamed, oh, screamed at, oh you know.
3: So, I, I just noticed, you know, even then I was, I was trying to meditate and everything, and I thought, like many of us, that at the moment when my death came, I would just be very dignified and say, it's been a beautiful ride, thank you everyone, and I didn't, I was just panicked beyond panic, uh, and was kind of in that state, just basically the word no repeating over and over in my mind, and... Uh, so that gave me some idea of how ready I really was. And then, you know, what was beautiful was in that moment I was sitting next to this fourteen-year-old boy, and I was so, uh, so incredibly inside myself. And all I could think of, I got to get out of this body, and that seat right there is what's going to do it to me, you know. And <clears throat> so, in the middle of this, this solipsistic, narcissistic uh, downfall, this fourteen-year-old kid turns to me and in the sweetest voice says, "Sir." is this supposed to be happening? Oh, sh- <laughs> God. Yeah. So that, I mean, that jolted me out of myself, thank God. And I could turn to him and then to the woman across. But I, th- I thought that was so terrifying, you know. You know, and George, did, so- I'm sorry.
1: And how did that, uh, realizing you weren't quite ready to go down on the airplane, lead to what is this exploration of the afterlife? Yeah.
3: No, I, I think what happened then is, you know, the next three days were glorious. Because it didn't, it didn't crash. That's right. A, yeah. But um, well, What, what were, did happen anyway? How, uh, it, it, a goose flew into the engine and took it out. Which happens, I guess. And, oh, that uh, was Sully
1: Sullivan, except it was a lot of birds. That's
3: right, and we weren't over, over water. Yeah. But, and we had one engine. So it really, it maybe felt like more of a crisis than it was. But, but afterwards, I, I said to the stewardess, "No, this must happen to you all the time. She goes, never once in 30 <laughs> years. You oh, know? my so, God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. But I think, you know, so you're, you're in that zone for just a couple of minutes. And, and uh, the next three days are lit up with beauty. I mean, a French fry, what a work of art, you know. Uh, And I think that sort of stays with you, you know. And and it occurred to me that the the primary energy in that moment was unbelievable denial on my part. And then within two or three days, it came back. Oh, I'm not going to. I would never die because I'm me. And that was puzzling. And then also I thought, what what would it be like if in your life you could sort of keep that feeling alive? a little bit every day. Just that, yeah. We're, this is I'm one day closer. Could that possibly make your life m- more interesting instead of terrifying? I want you to know. The answer is no. I, but, I knew yeah. a French
2: fry was a work of art even without that experience. <laughs> yeah, I want you. You know, when I stay totally in the fact world for a second and the research you did, and I should know more about this than I do. Marjorie knows. I spent an incredible 30 minutes two nights ago with uh, Kieser Khan, who everybody got to know at the uh, when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention, the Gold Star Father. And I interviewed him for my show last night. And you see the pain even years later in every sentence that comes out of this man's powerful body. What was the, what was the impact
3: on Lincoln of this, of the death of Willie? Well, we, we know that uh, one of the last conversations he had with his wife was... In a, they were out riding in a carriage, I think the day before the assassination, maybe the day uh-huh. of. And he said something like... And it's such a contemporary-sounding conversation. He basically said, honey what a time we've had. We haven't been right with each other ever since Willie's death. Mm. Let's try to fix that. You know. So that, so I think for, the effect on her was catastrophic. And the effect on him, we don't really know, but what I came to think was, okay, you have this terrifying loss. What does it do? It tenderizes you in some way, mm-hmm. I think. Or, or else it breaks you. But I think you tenderize. Then you take that new tender self, and suddenly there you are in 1862. Yeah. You know, what does that do? And I don't know, but in the book, it, it kind of just... Well, and historically, you know, Lincoln, I think we love him because his empathy pod expanded as things got tougher. He he came to love more people. He came to love... The, these Americans who were being enslaved. He came to love even the soldiers on the South. And you think, maybe in part, a function of what he experienced with his kids. I, 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 of course, I don't know, but I yeah. can't imagine not. You know, uh-huh. in that.
2: Well, the way.
1: shared suffering. I mean, yeah. you've talked a lot about that in the interviews you've been you had about this book. You also talk about something, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that you know we're all born to love, but it's all conditional. So how do you live joyfully uh, with those two truths? By the time we're finished with. Uh, with Lincoln and the we are we going to figure that out?
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but mostly if you, if you buy nine or ten copies. So that's the way it, it's sort of a design element. <clears throat> okay. Yeah.
1: Can I talk to you about something a little bit different? This is, um, you know, we always look at uh, the, the big commencement speeches that come out over the years. And you gave one, I think it was three years ago, that got a lot of play. Um, what was the theme of your speech? You know, we have
2: some. Do you know that? Oh, we have the, that's right. We, we actually have a
1: little piece. That's right. We should. Can we play the clip from the commencement speech by George Saunders? Here it is. What I
4: regret most in my life are failures of kindness. Those moments when
3: another human being was right there in front of me, suffering, and I responded sensibly, reservedly, mildly. Or to look at it from the other end of the telescope, who in your life do you remember most fondly? with the most undeniable feelings of warmth. Those who are kindest to
1: you, I bet. So you told this great story, and I think we can all relate to this because we were all mean little kids (laughs) once upon a time, about this little girl that was in your classroom briefly. Tell people
3: that story. Yeah, it was kind of a a small thing in a way. It was a girl who came to our school from somewhere else, and she was just kind of one of those odd, uncomfortable kids. And um, she... uh, she had, I remember she had a habit of, when she got nervous, she would chew her hair. That was her mm. thing. That was her tell, you know. And at the, she had, at that time, these blue cat-eye glasses that were not as cool as they are now. And uh, she just got kind of roughed up. Not, nothing overt, just uh, always the butt of these sort of jokes and always at the, uh, the outskirts of the, of the crowd. And um, then she went away. There is no um, big dramatic event, but I always... Uh, regretted not trying to reach out to her in some way You know, it wouldn't have taken anything and if I'd been 10 years more mature I, I could have done it uh, and so that was kind of the basis of the, the speech Just um, and of course that's one of the smaller unkindnesses I've done but it's the one I could air yeah. in public
1: well, it's a great <clears throat> speech and for those of us who are guilt propelled you should look <laughs> at the speech and it will make you reassess what you may have done when you were a kid and maybe reassess what's going on right now
2: We were talking to George Saunders about his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. Up next, Ian McEwen joins us to talk about his novel, Nutshell, a modern-day take on Hamlet. Stay tuned on 897-GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're replaying some of our favorite author interviews, which includes the one we had with Ian McEwen about his book, Nutshell. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And one of the latest adaptions of Hamlet begins with this interior monologue. So here I am, upside down in a woman, arms patiently crossed, waiting, waiting and wondering who I'm in. What I'm in for. Well, what you're in for when you pick up Ian McEwan's latest novel is a read unlike any other. The story of betrayal and murders told from the perspective of an unborn baby still in his mother's womb. It's entitled Nutshell. And if the premise sounds preposterous, it's not. McEwen has created a narrator who is totally believable and sympathetic. And it's a pleasure to meet you. The book is spectacular. Thank you for being well, here. Yeah, th- th- great to be here. Thank
1: you very much. Yes, one of the I think it was the reviewer in the New York Times said this is Hamlet in utero, <laughs> and, and this little this little being to be in utero is unbelievably uh, sympathetic and and uh, funny and and just. It's so believable. At the same time, it's utterly unbelievable. We, we tell people that haven't had a chance to read Nutshell. What is the basic story here of this book?
4: Well, the basic story is the basic story of Hamlet. Uh, my narrator, he doesn't have a name, uh, obviously no previous address, uh, <laughs> it appears to know a great deal about the world. Uh, really? Well, I mean, yes. I guess I'm in the right place to say that he really appreciates the radio. Um <laughs> He is uh, amazed and pleased at the rise and rise of radio in a um, digital age. Uh, So, you know, he will kick his mother awake in the middle of the night. Uh, She'll get insomnia and uh, she'll turn on the radio. Uh, He also listens to podcasts. So (laughs) he has a pretty comprehensive sense of the world he's about to join. So that allows him and me to reflect on that world. At the same time, uh, he becomes aware that uh, his mother is uh, having an affair and that the man she's having an affair with is, in fact, his uncle. Worse than that, uh, he realises they're plotting to kill his father. So there's the uh, Hamlet element. Like Hamlet, he uh, reflects on death and suicide. He even has an attempt to uh, strangle himself with uh, his own umbilical cord. Which the rest of the time he uses as um, worry beads. Uh, When you have a a fetus narrator, you allow yourself. I mean, it's quite restricting. What do you mean
2: when you have a fetus narrator? You're making it sound like whenever anybody
1: writes about
4: a fetus, yeah. Uh, When you uh, listen, the first thing to say about a fetus is you can always trust a fetus. Okay. They're straight-talking. <laughs> straight-talking, that's right. They they won't... Going, there's no spin. <laughs> no, They they really tell you as it is. So this is a reliable narrator.
2: Where'd the concept come from?
4: It just came from all... That empty hyperspace where all concepts come from. <laughs> I was uh, sitting around wondering where I was going, what I was doing next, and uh, this sentence, the very sentence you read, uh, mm-hmm. here I am, so here I am upside down in a woman just... Uh, <laughs> Flickered across my thoughts like ticker tape.
2: <laughs> Were well, you nervous it wouldn't work? Yes,
4: I mean, but it's the same nervousness I think all novelists have when you think you're onto something that you're going to screw it up, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, or you're going to get hit by a bus before you can <laughs> finish it.
1: Well, you answer some of the questions that many of us have pondered from outside the womb, especially for husbands in in marriages with with pregnant women. I mean, I think you've you've men who have very pregnant wives will be dissuaded from having sex with them after reading this book. Well, I
4: understand there was a nurse at a reading of mine lately who said that uh, the advice now is, you know, just proceed as normal. Yeah, proceed Um, as normal. Yeah. But your Um, your
1: little fetus was was not feeling so good about those interactions.
4: Well, uh, as he says, um, it's very vigorous and uh, would shake the wings off a Boeing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) LAUGHTER I I wrote that because I'm an Airbus man. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. Maybe the wings on Boeings aren't so uh, nicely stitched on.
1: I don't know. He's worried about his little head. (laughs) You know, Ian, I am
2: obsessed. We're talking to Ian McEwen, and you know him, or will know him from Nutshell. Obviously, you know him from Atonement. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I I don't know how much you're willing to engage in self-praise, but there is no doubt from Call Me Ishmael, Two, is was the best of times, it was the worst times. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins. This first line, so here I am upside down at a woman,
4: has got to be in the top ten, is it not? Well, I, uh, I'm pleased you think so. Uh, very few narrators are upside down. That is correct. Okay, and, and even fewer of those are inside a woman. Right. Uh, so it is a, a se- it's a sentence that uh, almost runs to a, a diminishing, to a, to a vanishing point. Mm-hmm. It's really saying to the reader, do you want to cross this line with me or not? And now's the time to put down the book if you don't. If you don't buy into this donne, this given, uh, then uh, you know uh, there's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> but if you want me to take your hand uh, and for the next four hours uh, live upside down with me, uh, with this character, and see how this murder plot's going to unfold, then we'll all be fine together.
1: Well, I'm so wrapped up with the helplessness of this little fetus, you know. I mean, I, I, you feel such empathy. He, he's so concerned or she she's so concerned and, about what's going to happen. And you can – you totally get wrapped up in its emotional ups and downs. You can have
4: – I mean, I have to admit I had fun writing this. Uh, you can tell. Once you decide, say, that his mother's going to take a glass of wine, well, he can't... Oh, I love that. He say He cannot ever say no when she's on her third glass of wine. Yeah. How
1: does he react to the uh, third glass of wine?
4: Well, uh, he just likes it to keep coming. <laughs> as he says, at the beginning of the book, she's she's still rather sensible. She hasn't got deep into her murder plot. Yeah. And murder plots do make one sort of want to drink a little more. Uh, so while she's refusing the third, he... Feels like um, reaching out for his umbilical cord, as if it were a, a, a bell rope in a, a well-staffed country house, and call out, you know, what home or wine from for us friends. <laughs> but he has listened to a podcast, a fifteen-part po- podcast called "Know Your Wine." <laughs> And he's pretty fussy. He he won't settle for a New Ze- Zealand uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. He, he wants the original French.
2: Have you thought about who should play the fetus? Should
4: this uh, make it to the big screen? It has to be a child, I think. I'd like to get a, a, a child with a lovely, clear, straightforward voice speaking these adult thoughts. Do you think were, about those things when you're uh, uh, when you're, or you're just focused on the writing? I've been asked about you know. Is this not a movie that uh, uh, a novel that cannot be translated into film? And I say, well, we now live in a world of CGI, computer generated images. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can do anything. I think the the more interesting challenge is how to move it out of a monologue. Mm -hmm. You you want to be in the action. You want to so uh, and to give uh, some visual, but not too horrific, sense of 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 your narrator. I mean, uh, um, as as he speaks. We've already had one offer, and we're just, um, maybe it's a bit too soon. But I think of movies a lot. I mean, we're we're in pre production as I speak for On Chesel Beach and Children Act. So I'm going back to a few weeks of hopping from one uh, production office to the other. um, You wrote
2: the screenplays
4: for them, did you not? When I read that you were,
2: uh, I wondered are you doing it? But you didn't write the screenplay
4: for Atonement. No Christopher Hampton right that. Yeah. are you doing it
2: now because you're unhappy with the film adaption of
4: no, I think Christopher did a great job so do I
2: by the way, uh, not that it matters, but yeah. uh, but
4: uh, so why it was partly I didn't want to do it, but I didn't want anyone else to do it ah uh, these these two short novels uh it so in the end, I thought screenplays have a lot in common with short novels with novellas, something about their structure, I think is it it's It's more attractive doing a 200-page novel than a 600-page novel. Uh, I've adapted other novelists' work for the screen, and you really have to destroy or discard so much that you love just to make your path through a kind of Do you
2: worry when you surrender, I wouldn't say ownership, but authorship, like in Atonement, even though you say you're happy with the outcome, does that worry you during the process? It does
4: a bit. I mean, even when you write the screenplay, your your, authorship belongs with the director. I mean, that is the convention of movie making. And uh, the two directors I'm working with, you couldn't ask for nicer, more sensitive uh, collaboration. But still, ultimately, it's their form, and I'm just the screenwriter. It's very grown up, Ian e. McEwan. Which, we're so
1: talking, we're talking with as Jim. Just said Ian e. that his latest book is not You know, you just said something interesting about um, it's more attractive when it's a two hundred page novel instead of a six hundred page novel. You're talking about more attractive to move that into a screenplay. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. It, it is often more attractive to the to the reader as well, uh, because you do see some people writing really really long um, novels, and that's a big, huge commitment when you have, there's so much to read and so much to do. I still love the shorter novels. Does that make me a
4: no, you're superficial a, person? No, I'm with you. I love short novels. I, I think they bring out the best in writers. When you think of all the, the great writers of the 20th century and some of their best work, it includes Heart of Darkness, Metamorphosis, Death in Venice. I mean, the list is long. It forces writers into a a new and more considered space for the individual sentence, the paragraph, the economy of setting up character. Uh, There's a crispness, I think, uh, service to the reader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like going to the movies or going to an opera or seeing a play. In three hours, you can be out of there.
1: But, you know, one of the things that you hear all the time, and you would know this because you've been writing for a long time, is that... in the good old days, you would have your Maxwell Person, Perkins-like mm-hmm. editor that would sit down with you and help you uh, make things more crisp and more direct, yeah. and that that's done now all over. I mean, maybe at this stage of your career, you don't need someone editing like that. But generally, that's true, isn't it?
4: I, I don't think I've ever needed that kind of editing because I always was a pretty severe self-editor. Yeah. And I've written quite a few short novels as well as full-length ones. Uh Back to the screenplay for a moment. Uh, it also gives you the opportunity, if you're doing your own uh, novel, to uh, touch on all the things that you thought you might do but mm. uh, decided for other reasons that you wouldn't. So in On Chesil Beach, for example, it gave me an opportunity for a scene that I now almost regret that I didn't put in the novel. Oh, what? Well, I, I'd have to tell you the whole plot, but uh, <laughs> this is a, a marriage that lasts only six hours, so... the. <laughs> Uh, but years later, when both parties are you know, in their late 60s, uh, he thinks of her and regrets her and remembers. Now, in the movie, I can get him to see her again, uh, to go to a concert. Uh, and while she's playing in her string quartet, their eyes meet. Uh, and she's playing a slow movement for a Mozart um, string quintet. And that's, a, you know, that is a movie move more than anything else. So they each form a tear, and we're Ooh, almost I at the that. end. But also he runs a failed record store by a canal in London. And one day a little girl comes in, an 11-year-old girl comes in. She's sort of familiar to him, but he doesn't quite know how or why. And she says she wants to buy a record, something other than classical music. She says, my mum just cares about classical music. So, and he realises it's his young woman, this is his, the daughter that oh he never God. had. And so he's able to say, well, how about Chuck Berry? Because he remembers playing to her Chuck Berry years ago and she just didn't get it. She said, why are there drums? I don't, you know, when, when, when something's in 4-4 time, why do you need a drummer? String quartets don't have drummers.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> she would you just read? didn't get it. Would you read a little bit uh, from Nutshell, Ian? Sure. This is Ian McEwen and he's reading from his latest
4: novel, uh, Nutshell. Or since, he's about to. Since we're talking about small things okay. mm, and small forms like the novella, here's my young fetus. Actually, he's an old fetus, by the way. He does regret uh, the passing of his youth when he could float <laughs> around. Um, you know, he feels he's an old guy. And he has to wonder about whether there's life after birth. So he's you know, something in our relationship to, to death. Anyway, he says this. Certain artists in print or paint flourish, like babies-to-be in confined spaces. Their narrow subjects may confound or disappoint some. Courtship among the 18th-century gentry, life beneath the sail, talking rabbits, sculpted hares, fat people in oils, dog portraits, horse portraits, portraits of aristocrats, reclining nudes, nativities by the million and crucifixions, assumptions, bowls of fruit, flowers in vases, and Dutch bread and cheese with or without a knife on the side. Some give themselves in prose merely to the self. In science, too, one dedicates his life to an Albanian snail, another to a virus. Darwin gave eight years to barnacles, and in wise later life, to earthworms. The Higgs boson, a tiny thing, perhaps not even (laughs) a thing, with the lifetime's pursuit of thousands. To be bound in a nutshell, see the world in two inches of ivory, in a grain of sand. Why not, when all of literature, all of art, of human endeavour is just a speck in the universe of possible things? And even this universe may be a speck in a multitude of actual and possible universes. So, why not be an owl poet? Stephen McEwen from uh, Nutshell. You know, one the, I don't know if you or
2: Marjorie mentioned in terms of what are the, what are the things that this little fetus or this aging fetus is uh, opining on, but also political issues. We talk about climate change here a lot. And the question I was pondering last night while reading is can a fetus finally have the impact on the debate that we've been
4: looking for in this country? Are you hopeful? I'm very hopeful. Just listen to what the fetus has to say uh, because they're going to inherit the world that we are warming even as we sit here drinking uh, warm coffee from a plastic cup. <laughs> <laughs> Not <laughs> us. We're uh, ceramic all the uh, way uh, here, my yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even ceramics require some <laughs> carbon dioxide to create. So- but anyway, yes, uh, he, he does reflect on it. But um, I've in a previously written a whole novel about climate change, and I didn't want to go over the same ground again. Uh, I, wanted to give him, I wanted to give him some cause for optimism. So he doesn't only think of the world going to hell in a handcart. He wants to say also, people have never lived so long. Half a billion have come out of poverty in 50 years. Uh, Various terrible diseases have have been um, eradicated. We live in an age of anaesthetics. Uh, We can get oranges in winter. Uh, We have electric light to read by in the evenings. So he's... He's trying to take a view that actually the human project, for all its clumsiness and folly, has also produced some marvels. So he's at heart, like many fetuses, <laughs> a humanist, <I'm> con- a, <laughs> a, a downright humanist, uh, and he wants the project to succeed. It's the all voice right, of Ian, Ian McEwan.
1: Ian McEwan, you were the first person from Great Britain we've, we've had in studio since the Brexit vote, and I know you've uh, spoken about this before. So how are things going?
4: Uh, well, I'm afraid they're going. Uh, uh, we ha- we are pushing forward on this project, which I think is a monstrous folly, probably the biggest political folly we've indulged since the Suez Crisis of 1956. Uh, I think of the European Union as one of the greatest sets of political treaties that was ever undertaken. It's kept the peace in Europe, and there has been much bloodshed in Europe in the 20th century, uh, and it's overseen a, a great deal of um, of prosperity too, and a wonderful interflow. The fact that you can drive from Calais right across through France, Germany, Italy, Spain, without having to show your passport was an unbelievable achievement. Uh, yes, there are democratic deficiencies. There's bureaucratic uh, stumbling and, and all the rest. We know its downsides but it could be improved and i wish we as a country were in there to help it improve instead we're going to turn our back we may become a kind of low tax corporate tax haven uh i think it's going to take 10 or 15 years of an enormous uh political energy and invention to get us out of all these treaties but we'll only be entering other treaties you know there's talk now of a treaty with australia a treaty is a diminution of your sovereignty, and it was precisely the diminution of sovereignty that people were voting for us to uh, were voting against. We'll end up with another set of treaties, uh, you know, which will limit our sovereignty. We will not be able to stay in the single market and have limits on uh, free movement of labour. This will never be squared. So um, I hope we get a chance to think again. Um.
2: But you, uh, when you say think again, I mean, first of all, the fetus clearly would have voted no. We can agree on Absolutely. that. Yes. He's so, a Remainer. Uh, yeah. so, so, <laughs> but uh, when you say you hope you get a chance to re- rethink it or whatever you just said a minute ago, Ian McEwen, one, the new prime minister has said it's done, essentially. But so two things. One, do you think that second vote could ever happen? And from what we read from across the ocean – a significant chunk of the uh, Brexit voters feel they were sold a bill of goods, whether it's about all this money being transferred exactly. to uh, the national health system, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Or if it were redone today, it would fail, wouldn't it?
4: I, I, that would be my guess, very hard to tell. But when uh, the prime minister says it's done or Brexit means Brexit, nobody knows what Brexit means. It's like saying in maths, X equals X. It's a truism. You know, until we know what X is... So, you know, from my point of view and many others, we uh, opted to live in a parliamentary democracy, not to be ruled by plebiscites. And when you change practically everything about the country from its science to its agriculture to its whole political arrangements and its international arrangements, you need a majority vote, more than a majority vote and this was a 4% majority vote, doesn't seem enough
2: to me. So can you imagine another vote, or are you just hoping that it would happen? There's a big
4: movement for it, right. uh, the parliament. This was only advisory. This it has no binding. I understand yeah. that. Uh, so uh, there is quite a strong impulse for uh, a parliamentary vote on this.
1: So you are also the first person we've had in from Great Britain since uh, Donald Trump is, is so close to becoming the next president of the United States. What's, what, is, what do you hear over there about what the United States is up to?
4: Well, I've uh, talked and listened uh, on no other subject really since I've been here. I mean, and New York, I think, is bristling with indignation at the possibility of that he's your next president. Well, I'm going to put this all very mildly because uh, this is not my election. But he seems uh, somewhat underinformed about the world, yeah. and uh, and I think many of his solutions are sort of the th- things you hear in a bar room. You know, when you just lock him up. We were talking in the car this morning about uh, someone saying the, the Rahimi, the bomber in New York. Uh, people, neighbors were saying he was a rather quiet man. Yeah, and, and I was saying, yeah, nearly every mass murderer. The neighbor says he was a perfectly nice, quiet man. <laughs> The Trump solution here would be, let's lock up all the quiet men. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, you haven't been talking for a minute or two. I think you'd better come with me. Yeah. So I, I think there's an absurdity uh, to, to many of his solutions. That, um, and I would urge people to stay with Hillary. I, I don't understand how the notion has got so firmly lodged in people's mind that she's not trustworthy. I see nothing. I see no proper evidence of that. So I hope that she'll scrape through. But it's worrying that even if he fails Trump, that he has such a large constituency and what this means for American politics in the future. He was also a big Brexit
2: guy, as you know, and he sees yeah. that as a harbinger of what he hopes happens on November eighth. Uh,
4: well, he put his foot in it when he arrived in Scotland and congratulated Scotland on leaving Europe <laughs> yeah. because the vote was overwhelmingly <laughs> to remain, and it looks like that's another consequence. Oh well. You. Ian,
2: before you go,
4: I just—I
2: uh, always wonder when someone comes in who has the skills you do, how much you—you you write in solitude, I assume, comparatively speaking, and then you go out and you have adoring fans at places like the First Parish Church. I think I read last night, and Marjorie mentioned you when you came, you live way out in the woods somewhere, correct? Yeah, I keep a place in, in town as well. So it, it, how do you feel about doing what you're doing tonight? Well, uh, oh, tonight.
4: Oh, or or it, the it's...
2: generic tonight. I don't just mean tonight. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
4: you generally get uh, a highly intelligent, well-read Interviewer. So basically you sit down and talk about your own book and books in general and literature and the state of the world and actually I could be doing that at home uh, over a cup of coffee with a friend. And instead I'm doing it in front of 600 people. It's, it's usually a breeze. It's, it's really delightful to do. Uh, the trick is not to do it too much. I mean, if if you do 20 in a row, for example, as some people do on big tours around mm-hmm. the States, you get very jaded. Uh, and bored and the spark goes out of it but if you just do I mean I've just done a very lightweight tour up and down the east coast and uh, you know this is the very last time uh, this is the last spot in in the United States before I go to Toronto Uh, and as long as you can stay fresh with it uh, it's fun What's wrong with the west coast? Well it's i well, nothing wrong with the West Coast, <laughs> <laughs> as far as I can tell. Okay, just
1: make sure it wasn't a little anti California thing going on there. It's kind of nice out there this time. No,
4: I think I just didn't want to get on. I don't so like I'd... U.S. domestic flights.
1: You know something? You are absolutely right. They're absolutely horrible. In my limited travels, every time I get on an Alitalia or. I've never been on British Airways, but an Alitalia or Air France, I think, how come we get all this wonderful food for free, free wine? Yeah. base $7 for peanuts in the United States of America. I don't understand that.
4: Yeah, well, it's all in your fare. So, I mean, it's just smokes and mirrors. But. I've gone up and down by train. Oh! My whole tour has been by train. We're big Lovely. train people here. So that makes a colossal difference to your yeah. state of mind when you get to the next town. That is true. You know, being treated like um, pigs. You know, the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Ian
2: McEwan, the book is great, and so yeah, are you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so it is such a time. thrill really to meet you, it. and
1: congratulations on another spectacular effort. Mm. I just love this book.
2: We were talking to writer Ian McEwen about his novel, Nutshell. Up next, Michael Pollan is here to talk about his investigation into psychedelics and how they change your mind. Stay tuned on 897-GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we're replaying some of our favorite author interviews. We pick things up with journalist and writer Michael Pollan, who joined us to talk about his investigation into the world of psychedelic drugs. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And with the omnivore's dilemma, Michael Pollan changed the way we thought about food. In his latest book, could he do the same for how we think about psychedelic drugs? It's entitled, How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. The only thing you left out of the title was sex and rock and roll. Maybe <laughs> we'll get to that, too. Michael Pollan, it's great to see you again. Thanks so for being here. Good to be back. Thanks.
1: It is great to see you. Congratulations on a fascinating it book. It is fascinating. But, you know, we think of you, Michael, we think of you as the food guy. Yeah. So how did you get from food to uh, psilocybin, LSD, psychedelic drugs? Well,
5: mushrooms, you know, are in both camps. That's uh, a good point. <laughs> Oh,
1: that's a good point.
5: But my, uh, my interest in psychedelics is part of a long-standing interest I've had, actually, in our relationship to the natural world. I mean, that is my big subject. Food is an important part of that relationship. But another thing we use nature for, whether you're talking about plants or fungi, is to change consciousness. All of us today... I see a cup of coffee right there. That's right. have used a plant to change consciousness. And I've always thought this is a very curious human desire. What is it, why would we have this desire? Why would it be adaptive? And so that I've written about that a few times before in uh, Botany of Desire and articles I've written on uh, on drugs. Psychedelics represents the most radical case of taking something from nature that changes your consciousness in dramatic ways. People have been doing it for thousands of years, and I got very interested in discovering why that might be. But part of the the genesis, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael Pollan,
2: was you'd begun to hear that there was some usage in current times which is very beneficial for people with alcoholism or who were... Believe they were dying and
5: those sorts of things. So yeah. there's a practical. Oh thing yeah, here no. Too. The reason, The reason I decided to do it now was because I started reading about these studies going on at NYU and Johns Hopkins, very prestigious you mm-hmm. know, medical centers, where they were using psilocybin to treat people who had cancer diagnoses, who were alcoholics, and they were finding they were really picking up on research that was done in the 50s before Timothy Leary and mm-hmm. the, the backlash against psychedelics, and that they were getting very good results. And the idea that you would you, know, you would have a terminal cancer diagnosis and then you would go on a psychedelic seemed to me so weird and so, so not what I would do that uh, I became curious to know how was this molecule actually helping in that situation. So before we talk about the promise or potential promise, whatever you want to say about
2: psychedelics in 2018 and beyond, one of the parts I love about this book is the history. Uh, because I, and I which, were is discuss, local, which is well, I, I'm local. I'm just going to yeah, say, There's so That's much right. of it local, everybody remembers, even if you're young, turn on, tune in, drop out Timothy Leary, yeah. Harvard professor until he was no longer a Harvard uh, uh, a professor. Give us, if you can, sort of the Cliff Notes version sure. of the rise and fall of psychedelics
5: in our yeah. lives. Sure. Well, the story goes back. I mean, for most Americans, they didn't tune in to psychedelics until Timothy Leary That's, in the 60s. You're talking right? to one. But it was going on from 1950 or so. There was a very active uh, program of research going on in Canada, in uh, England, and in uh, LA and in Vancouver, a couple other places. And they were getting some interesting results and they were treating it as a new psychiatric intervention. LSD had recently been discovered and psychiatrists and neuroscientists were trying to figure out what is it good for? Uh, What does it teach us about the brain? How might we help people with it? 1960, uh, psych- uh, a personality researcher named Timothy Leary, very well regarded, has an experience with uh, magic mushrooms in uh, poolside in Cuernavaca. He said he learned more in four hours on that trip than he had learned in his entire career as a psychologist, including graduate school. And he had just been hired by Harvard. And he gets back in the fall and, he's, and he goes to the chairman of his department and says, we've got to study this. I want to start something called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And he begins, and they give him approval. Remember, these drugs were all legal at the time. And he starts uh, administering it to people uh, in a naturalistic setting, uh, which was essentially living rooms. Uh, his graduate ha- students, theoretically, well, not that's undergraduates, right? He was right? limited. He, he could give the drug to graduate students, not to undergraduates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he would do this in there. He was living in Newton in his house. And um, he kind of very quickly became so enchanted by these drugs and he gradually switched from psilocybin to LSD, which is more powerful, that he uh, lost interest in science. Uh, And he went from the idea that we could treat individuals with these drugs to the fact that we needed to treat the entire society. And we don't have a paradigm for treating a whole society, prescribing a drug to a whole society. But he really felt so strongly that it's silly to to study this in a double-blind... You can't even really do a good double-blind study... Although uh, they tried at Marsh Chapel with a, a fa- very famous experiment where they gave psilocybin to uh, 20 divinity students in 1961 to see if they could see God. And uh, 10 got the drug, 10 got a placebo. The 10 on the placebo sat in the, uh, in the pews like this, getting really annoyed at the 10 who were like, oh my God. <laughs> There he is
1: there he is and uh, and they had this
5: profound religious experience i don 't know what they proved exactly, um, so he did do some experiments, but over time, he just became an evangelist for everybody should use this
2: and, and ultimately, not too long later, as his profile rose, concerns rose and no less than the president of the United States, Richard Nixon at the time, didn't the most dangerous man in
5: America. He called Timothy Leary, by then a washed-up psychology professor, who had been fired from Harvard, the most dangerous man in America, which is kind of astonishing. But but a lot of people, Ronald Reagan believed this too, and Nixon believed that these drugs were really fueling the counterculture and sapping the will of American youth to fight in Vietnam. And in fact, Leary had said this. He said, um, kids who take LSD will not fight your wars. And so it was, the drugs did have a, a tremendous effect on the counterculture. They shaped its styles, they, uh, and I think they, con- they contributed um, to this generation gap, which was really unprecedented. You had young people creating their own culture, different way of dressing, different kind of music, different uh, sexual mores, uh, you know, ethics, everything was different. And this was terrifying to adults, and certainly to the people in charge politically. Um, It was the first time in history, I think, where we had a rite of passage that um, was not knitting culture together, but separating it. Because normally a rite of passage, whether you're talking about a bar mitzvah or a vision quest, is organized by the elders to bring the adolescents into adult society. Here, the kids had organized the rite of passage, and and it landed them in a country of the mind that no adult do anything about. Well, talk about that
1: country of the mind, uh, Michael Pollan, that, that uh, as you described uh, so well, that people were having these mystical experiences, like this, experiencing a oneness with nature or a oneness with God, whatever it was. And unlike, usually, if you have 17 cocktails and you think you're having <laughs> a oneness with nature at 2 o'clock in the morning, the uh, next morning you have a big hangover, what seems and to... And you
5: feel silly about it.
1: This, these experiences stayed with yeah. the people and with you, which we're going to talk about in a second, when they were sober.
5: Yeah, I, one of the, the, the real hallmarks of the kind of, of the psychedelic experience is it has a concreteness and a, and a reality. Unlike dreams, unlike being drunk or on other drugs, you really believe what you saw is revealed truth not some subjective experience. And that's a really strange thing about these drugs. Yeah. Uh, I have some theories why it should be. I mean, I think you're, you're, you know, one of the things that happens under a high dose experience is your ego dissolves, essentially. And when your ego dissolves, there's no in and out. There's no subjective objective. It's everything is objective. And so the force, the conviction people leave these experiences with is powerful. And it can be very therapeutic. Because if you have some insight during a trip, like, gee, smoking, really not very good for me. You know, something really stupid and banal like that. If you have it during a psychedelic trip, it's like, oh my God, the tablets, this is true. And you believe it in a way you never did before.
1: I want you to talk about the guy that uh, was dying of cancer. And, and you talk about this in the book that people are afraid of dying in many cases mm. and how his attitude changed after he yeah. uh, tried some psychedelic. So uh,
5: I, I spent a lot of time learning about uh, a journalist who was my age named Patrick Metis. He was, a New York, he was a news producer for MSNBC in New York. And he got bile duct cancer in his 50s. And it spread to his lungs. And he didn't have very long to live. And he was paralyzed by fear and anxiety. He heard about this trial going on at NYU. He got in and he had uh, a single, um, uh, a fairly high dose psilocybin journey. And in this journey, he traveled through his life and met people who he had known in the past. He um, uh, had an experience in the middle of the journey of kind of climbing up on this precipice. And it was all like stainless steel and looking over it. And there was this field of consciousness that, that he realized was in his future. And that he could go there now if he wanted to. And that this was what his death would be like. He'd, he'd kind of get folded into this consciousness. But he wasn't ready to go. He loved his wife very much, Lisa, and he stepped back. And he realized, I have more to do here, but that's, that's where I end up, and I'm okay with that when I get there. And many other things happened, but this was a key, uh, the key insight for him. And... Uh, he, he, when that trip was over, he, was, um, he had this moment of ecstasy uh, at the end, and his life was changed. He went on to live 17 more months. He spent that time. Part of it, he stayed on his chemo for a while. Then he gave it up because he was, the quality of his life, he realized, was more important than the quantity at this point. And he died with an equanimity that his wife described that his uh, psychologist described that was quite remarkable. Uh, everybody in the hospital, he was at Mount Sinai in New York, the staff gravitated toward his room because of this, this, this emanation of love he was putting out. And uh, shortly before he died, his, his wife took a photograph of him and she sent it to me. And when I popped this photograph open on my computer, it just took my breath away. This emaciated man, oxygen clip, hospital gown, beaming. Five days before his death, I mean, it just—it was—it was, it was uh, uncanny, and uh, and that was one of the one of the things that made me realize I had to see what this was about.
2: Michael Pollan is a journalist and writer. We were talking to him about his book, *How to Change Your Mind*: What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Coming up, we continue our author interview marathon with writer Susan Orlean. She's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. This is Boston Public Radio. Today we're replaying some of our favorite author interviews, including the one we had with Susan Orlean about her latest endeavor, the library book.
6: I had been... At one point when I was in a library, really thinking about how fascinating these places are, I'm I'm really attracted to stories about things that we think we know and we've never actually stopped and looked closely. So it was sort of bubbling around in my mind. When I began taking my son to the library, it was a chance to revisit all these memories of going to the library with my mother. mother. Which is so
1: beautiful. Yeah. And it was Tell so, people about uh, that. Too. Well,
6: um, I grew up going to the library with my mom a couple of times a week. It was a very sort of sacred ritual of ours. The library became this place that I found just magical. And those trips in particular felt really enchanted to me. When I began taking my son, the reconnection with those memories was so intense. And I began thinking, why are libraries so evocative? I mean, my mom took me to a lot of places. It's not as if the only place she took me was the library. But my memory and my association with it was so powerful And then I heard about the fire, which was the largest library fire in American history. And it was so overwhelming. It was in itself a fascinating story, but it continued um, reminding me of this ineffable quality about libraries that makes them so special. And when you hear about a library burning, your heart just drops. There is something particular about libraries that makes us feel that connected to them, that the idea of 400,000 books burning and 700,000 more being damaged, it's just sickening. So I I was fascinated by the story coming from very... Uh, Quite a few different angles, you know, really.
2: Before I read your book, uh, uh, I uh, I said, I, and I read somewhere that this is non obviously a nonfiction thing. And then I start reading about it, and I say it can't be nonfiction because I never heard of it if it's the largest library fire. But there's a reason that yeah. most of us never heard about it, Well, correct? which
6: in itself was fascinating because I thought, how did I never hear about this? Mm. And it just seemed baffling to me that I wouldn't have heard of it. I went to look at the New York Times the day of the fire, and the reason I looked at the New York Times was that the fire, which was in 1986, occurred when I was living in New York. So I thought, all right, what was I reading that day? I pull up the newspaper out of the archives, and there's a banner headline saying something to the effect of Soviets deny (laughs) meltdown at Chernobyl Chernobyl nuclear plant. So the fire occurred the same day as the Chernobyl meltdown. And that's why it was lost to history a little bit.
2: You know, when you beautifully mentioned your connection to the library with your kid and your mother and that sort of thing, when I first heard about this book, I said, there is no way that this can be that interesting. And it's not because you are not wildly skillful as we all, but it's a library. And right. Both, no, but, I get and, you know, it. and it's so funny. Mm-hmm. And then I read the review that Michael Lewis wrote, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, about another topic that I couldn't believe could ever be interesting, the infrastructure of departments of the federal government under Donald Trump. So did you have any self-doubt in the... in the?
6: Oh, yes. Absolutely. I, on one hand, I was completely compelled to tell the story and thought it was deeply interesting and emotional and suspenseful. And I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then there would be other moments where I'd think, it's about a library. I mean, what could make people more fearful of a book being boring than if you say, well, it's a book about a library. And you almost feel like you can see a meter go off in their mind, like, I'm giving you one (laughs) second to talk about this, and then I'm done. But... I also have a contrarian streak that makes me love writing about subjects that people initially think are either too obscure to matter or uninteresting, because the fact is they are fascinating. They are. I mean put aside whether I did a good job or not, it's a really interesting story. Well, you also introduced
2: us really t- to the great Harry Peake, who is, oh, talk about fictional and non-fictional, yeah. is almost like in a movie to begin with. You want to tell us a little bit about Harry Peake? Yeah,
6: the fire was determined very early on to be arson. And shortly after the decision was made by looking at the site that it was arson, a young man was arrested who partly because he was telling everybody he had started the fire. He grew up outside of L.A., a good-looking, charming young guy who dreamed of being famous, of being a, a movie star. Not necessarily an actor, but a movie star. He was beloved by his friends who also said the one thing about Harry is he was a compulsive liar. You couldn't believe a word he said. He ended up having seven different alibis, which I don't know a lot about crime, but my guess is if you're going to have an alibi, it's good to have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he he was in many ways a very sympathetic character because he he meant no one any harm, but he just couldn't... He just was somebody who who blundered through life in many ways. And the saga of the prosecution was fascinating. And he was never convicted of anything. He was arrested, but not convicted. Um, And it turned into a a kind of crazy story of him suing the city and the city suing him, Um, ultimately coming to a, a... an unresolved sort of conclusion. Well,
1: tell us about the day of the fire. It started in the fiction department. Is that? The, I mean, which I thought was
6: kind of interesting. If you're a sleuth, yeah. Well, it, it, and <laughs> I wanted to know which book it exactly. started in. You know, which is the most flammable book in the library? What the library in 1986 was not in good repair. They had. Fire alarms go off all the time because the, f- the fire alarm system wasn't good and they had bad wiring. And the the place had been, for 20 years, debated over whether to tear it down and build a new building, which you would certainly understand. Um, and they had finally decided, no, we're going to renovate this building. It's, nevertheless, fire alarms went off all the time for false alarms. So on the morning of April 29th, an alarm went off, and everybody evacuated very grudgingly because the feeling was, oh, God, another false alarm. Mm. The fire department arrived, looked around the building, said, yep, another false alarm. We'll just go reset, reset the alarm. But it wouldn't reset. So they decided to take another look around At that point, they saw a little bit of smoke in the fiction department, and while they were radioing to people outside to say, hey, we found some smoke, it exploded into a raging fire. And it burned for seven and a half hours. It reached temperatures over 2,000 degrees. Part of the reason is that it went off in the stacks, which are almost like chimneys, they're small, concrete, build, um, almost like a column built in the building lined with books. So if a fire gets started, it, it's the perfect place to burn. And, and uncle- it was closed
2: for seven years? Seven after. years. Talk a little bit about what that did to the people who worked at the library.
6: It was devastating. They, A lot of the librarians had what would now be diagnosed as PTSD, and the city brought in a psychologist to meet with them and try to help them. They They had built their collections, which people don't realize that librarians don't simply buy every book that's out there. They deliberately choose what they feel are the books the public needs and wants. So this is a lifetime of work that literally went up in smoke. Many of them were really traumatized by the idea that the library wouldn't be available for people to use. And they were right. It was closed for seven years. Nobody knew if the building would ever reopen. They, There were a number of marriages that fell apart. Um, you know, a lot of the librarians just were grieving. And the trauma of it was it, really extreme.
2: You
1: know,
6: we're talking
2: to-, to Susan Orlean, by the way. Her latest is the library book.
6: Um, uh.
1: Tell us about some of these characters that you that you profiled. There was Wyman Jones and and this uh, Mary Jones, too, the the one of the few women librarians that had a chance to get a big job and then didn't. Tell us about a couple of those people.
6: Well, so the the people who have run the library in L.A. are, I think, I would say all libraries attract very individual people. To put it just. Very generally, they attract a lot of eccentric, interesting, dramatic sorts. California may attract a slightly higher percentage of unusual, eccentric people. So the L.A. Library has been run since the turn of the century when it was founded by a a series of dramatic characters. My favorite one, actually, was a man named Charles Lummis who had been a newspaper man in Ohio, was hired by the L.A. Times, packed up his belongings, and this is in, like, 1898, and rather than taking the train to California, he walked. Walked and kept a journal that was published of his walk across the country. When he took over the library, he was a passionate reader and passionate about people bettering themselves at the library. He believed it really was a tool for self-improvement. It drove him crazy when people read books that he thought were stupid. So rather than removing those books from the collection, which would have been a sort of censorship, he had a cattle brand made with a skull and crossbones. And he would take the books that he felt were particularly egregious and brand them and put a slip of paper in saying, this is the worst possible book on this subject. And for better books, perhaps you should read. And then list books that he thought were better. And he was a very, very significant character. I mean, he wasn't just a nut. He was a brilliant guy who brought a lot of innovation and a sort of modern attitude to the library at in, in 1905. But he was a a very, very quirky and dramatic guy.
2: We're talking to Susan Orlean. The book is the library book. You know, the coincidence in time is unblocked. You don't know this, but twice a week we broadcast our show from the central branch of the Boston Public Library, actually. And no, it's too bad you're not there. Tuesdays we and Fridays. space
1: with, with- all renovated section of the library. We share with a cafe. It's really oh, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's great. And where do we go on Friday?
2: Well, that's it. I, the th- reason I thought of this is because Marjorie and I were uh, taken on our second tour of the bowels of the library by David Leonard, who runs as the head of the library, and two of his wonderful staff people. And the reason I, uh, uh, so we were in the stacks, by the way, when you mentioned it was really, it resonated. But the thing that if you didn't hear the introduction of Susan a few minutes ago, while well, the book is about obviously the fire, the greatest fire, library fire of them all, but it's also about the library as an institution. One of the things – you turned – I don't even know if you remember. You turned to David Leonard during our hour-long tour on Friday and said, you know, what's the future of libraries in the – which you address powerfully and so – David answered the question quite well. What's your answer, Susan or Lane?
6: Well, I think it's a very legitimate question because we're seeing a move away, to some degree, a move away from printed books. Although I will say that move away is not as yeah. rapid no. as it had been. And it's, it's not it's, the same. It's leveling off.
2: Including a young, amongst young people, we were told by the librarians on Friday, by the that way, that the assumption was people of our generation are the ones that want hard copies. And in fact, it's exactly children, what they said. Yeah. They're returning to hard copies. Yeah, Children yeah.
6: read hard copies. Yeah. 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 I um, The way that I've sort of explained it to people who are wondering about what's the future of libraries is to say libraries are like public parks for the mind. They are hubs of information and storytelling and knowledge, whatever media that comes in. And in the past, that was overwhelmingly books. In the present, it's books, it's music, it's computers, it's event programming, it's people sharing stories with each other, it's literacy, it's everything that we do to share this uh, nature of of knowledge and information. Well, They're, it's also
2: human contact, as you and, make out with that ask a librarian or whatever the hell that's called. You know, yeah. why do you not just Google it? Because, in part, you want and, human contact. Right? And
6: similarly, the way you might go to a park for a picnic, even though you have a backyard, <laughs> yeah. there there's a value that I think is becoming more recognized all the time of gathering as a community. And we don't have that many places that we gather as a community that where there isn't a, a commercial aspect of it. We're also we've entered the world of people not having offices to go to for that kind of community. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of people that are there at their workspace. Yeah, I've it's noticed. a co-working yeah. space. Yeah. It's
6: the original co-working mm-hmm. space. Every now and again, I point out to people that we've seen the explosion of Starbucks and coffee shops in the last, whatever, 20 years. You could make a cup of coffee at home. But for the privilege of paying $7 for a cup of coffee, there's a a really satisfying quality of being around other people. So libraries offer that as well as being the center of how we share stories and knowledge. And, and I don't see a grim future at all. Um, I think as long as we exist as a, a, a creatures who share knowledge and need and want to hear each other's stories and information, libraries will thrive. Well, you know what
1: else, uh, and you see this at the Boston Public Library, and you mentioned the, the, uh, when the library opened in L.A. at 10 o'clock in the morning, the homeless people are racing in to use right. the bathrooms. I mean, th- you know, they've
2: added a whole a, a separate staff line at the Boston Public Library about six months ago specifically to deal with homeless, homeless people. people. A, a, they serve homeless people. Yeah. The it's well, pretty great. Well, because
1: it's, again, one of the few places where you see, we I mean, were so isolated in where we live. You know, wealthy people live in one part of town, not-so-wealthy people live in another part of town, et cetera. I mean, you come to the library. I've mm-hmm. never been to the Los Angeles library, but certainly the Boston library. We come in in the morning before it opens, and there are people who are sleeping outside right. it or are sitting outside it on the bench all day long the, in the summertime. So it's that, too. It's that. Oh, absolutely. They can certainly come in and they can sit at the cafe and they can go use the restrooms or they can go get a book or they, you know, and you don't see it, that.
6: Uh, right. I mean, it is one of the few places that we see ourselves for what our community really is. And it's everybody together. And the issue... I mean, libraries have been heroic in their response to dealing with homeless people. That's not originally their mission. And yet they've been really pretty extraordinary in saying, you know what? It turned into our mission and now we're going to do what we can with our resources.
2: We're talking to Susan Orlean. The book is the library book. We only have a couple oh, of minutes. Yeah, and I want oh, to be God. a
1: groupie for a couple of
6: minutes here. Well,
2: before you're a groupie, can you just <laughs> briefly tell us what the experience of burning a book was like for you? I mean, talk about books. And, and also in the same thing, whether you see the, the Trumpian goal of eliminating certain knowledge from the world to be sort of a variation on a theme.
6: Well, it certainly when I began writing this book, it was in a different era. I started this book six years mm-hmm. ago, and the idea of the the possibility of knowledge being taken out of our hands was not as acute as it feels right now. It was interesting to burn a book because logically I thought, well, this shouldn't be that big of a deal. I can get another one. It's not like a Shakespeare folio. It was, and yet it was so. It's so taboo. There is something so deeply ingrained in us that makes us look at books and libraries as having a kind of human quality. So, what did and, it feel like to you? Well, I, I, I was, I explained it to somebody the other day by saying it was a little like bungee jumping without the fun part of it. I mean, I was so anxious and resistant and kind of squeamish. And, and then it happened so fast. And in a way, it was very upsetting because the book was gone in a flash, literally, and there was nothing left. So symbolically, it felt... Very ominous to think that a book with the voice of a writer and ideas and information could just be... Made to disappear. In it was Fahrenheit
2: uh, uh, in 451. 451 well, that's right? appropriate. One,
1: yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So, Susan Orlean, people probably know, but just in case they don't, your your book, The Orchid Thief, was turned into the movie adaptation. So, Meryl Streep paid
6: you, uh, played you. Nicholas Cage was the star. Did you get Chris to meet?
2: Cooper won an Academy Award, a local people. guy. Yeah,
6: neat. I spent some time on the set, which was oh, cool. really fun and a little surreal, as yeah. you can imagine. But it was. Um, it's a great movie. It, it is, is a not movie. a verbatim adaptation of my book. No. By any means, but I think it's in many ways a deeper, more interesting kind of look at the themes of the book than a, a, a and at the time that the book was optioned, I remember for for real saying to my husband, there is no way they can make this into a movie. They're going to have to change it up. They're going to make the crime, more like someone will die, there will be a love story. And, oh, yes, and there was. <laughs> and, and I was right, not that I'm a genius, but the fact is, and because the book grapples with this whole idea of what Hollywood needs for a movie versus what a piece of art Needs which made really was what the movie was all about. So, but, did you
2: say the same thing to your husband about this one?
6: Yeah, because it's going to be movie, too. I suspect. Well, this will be it, we're, it's being adapted uh, for television. Oh, it is, yeah, oh, great. which is exciting. And I oh, th- similarly said to my husband, I just don't quite <laughs> understand how they would adapt this. Except I'm going to actually work on um, writing the pilot. Oh okay. fabulous! So, so, so we only have about 25 seconds left. But you wrote a great piece about Tanya Harding back
1: at the time there was in the Olympics, and she was in competition with, with, uh, with Nancy Kerrigan. You went
6: to her hometown very briefly. Do you think she got a bad rap? I think people didn't understand who she was, yeah. and did she do something wrong? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think there's no question, but. I think that it was just a story about class that was so misperceived on every, at, from every angle that it fascinated me, and it continues to fascinate us.
2: We were talking to writer Susan Orlean about the library book. Coming up, we continue our conversation with writers with actor-turned-writer Jesse Eisenberg. He's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just joining us, we're replaying some of our favorite conversations with authors from over the years. And that includes the one with actor Jesse Eisenberg, whose fiction debut is the book Breen Gives Me Hiccup and Other Stories.
1: Well, let me start by falling all over you, Jesse Eisenberg, and say I was reading this book and laughing out loud over and over and over again. I mean, people know you from the social network. They say you playing Mark Zuckerberg. That was a great role. We'll talk about that and we'll talk about Superman coming up. You are really talented. This is really good. And before I saw the book flap, which compared you to Woody Allen, I was reading this and I was thinking of the Kugelmas episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Woody Allen, yeah. Which Woody Allen wrote yeah. years ago before he had all his travails. We kind of got a little cringy about Woody Allen. But, I mean, do you mind that comparison? I mean, I know you've, you've been in one of his movies. I mean, do you mind that writing comparison between you and Woody Allen? It's very similar.
0: No, I don't know. He might mind. But, no, I mean, I, I could not be more honored. I mean, I think he's the greatest, you know, comedic voice in history. You know, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, not only kind of Specific to my culture and my interests and my geography, but also you know generally. Yeah. You're in New
2: York City. Are you a Jersey kid or a New York City kid? Both. I'm born in Queens, raised in New Jersey. You were. Yeah. So when you met Woody Allen before you did the film yeah. uh, to Run with Love, right? That's right. What was it? Were you uh, we intimidated, or I mean, because he's uh, <laughs> apparently an odd sort of soul in real life, even though he's brilliant. What was that like?
0: Oh, it's it's odd because he's not only uh, you know my favorite talent, but he's also iconic in this way that transcends just being a person. So it's just a surreal experience to see somebody. Who you kind of grew up idolizing and who is like kind of embedded in the public consci- consciousness?
2: You know, I grew up, I lived in New York City for 15 years. Every celebrity I ever saw, I went up to them and shook their hand. The one exception, I was too intimidated. I'm walking down East 68th Street where my father used to <laughs> right. live. Yeah. Woody Allen's walking the other way on the same street with patches on his jacket. <laughs> right. I did not have the courage to go say Hawaii, hello. What was it? About I have no idea. It was just right. totally intimidating kind of thing because he is so smart and so whatever. Now, tell us what the thesis... What, what's well, the before thing? we get
1: to that, though, you had a little bit of run with uh, Woody Allen's lawyers when you oh, were a mere yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right.
0: Oh, the, first, <laughs> yes, the first script I wrote, I, I was like 16 and uh, it was about Woody Allen, but took place in modern times. And It was about Woody Allen at 16 and somebody had sent it to his agents. I was very excited. I heard that somebody had sent it to Woody Allen's agents and then they had sent it to Woody Allen's lawyers. Even more exciting. And then less exciting was the cease and desist letter they sent me. <laughs> uh, telling me, you know, if I had to do anything, they would prosecute me to with an inch of the law. Did you tell that to him when you met him? No, I've never mentioned that to him. (laughs) I I can't imagine, you know, he's, I I can't imagine that would be great for our relationship.
2: Okay, so Bream Gives Me Hiccups is a (laughs) series of wildly funny, I'm with Marjorie on this, really short stories. What was the
0: thinking behind putting this thing together? Um, I guess I see, like, absurdities in the world, and I feel like a need to express them. Uh, so a lot of, so there are many different characters in the book, and they're all kind of, yeah, dealing with usually kind of internal problems, with the way they express themselves is funny too. How much
2: is, uh, you know, the one, Margie and I were comparing notes, which did you think was the funniest? Your thing with the kid who goes to the summer camp, and oh, right. the the succession of opportunities to call your mom, as you call right, her everything, right, 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 right. was so much me, I was almost embarrassed to read it, much less talk about it. Yes, yes, Wait, yes. How much of this is you in this book?
0: Yes, that's me. Like, I went to camp for six hours, and I... <laughs> it, it was about five hours too long for me. Like I just, I can't, like, exist in that world, you know, and so, like, I thought it'd be funny to write about a sleepaway camp that allow, that's for kids with separation anxiety. Yeah, so that's all me. You know, it's all this stuff that as a child was traumatic but now I can use it to, you know, mm. to be funny.
1: Yeah, that one is called separation anxiety sleepaway camp. Your next story is about your mother explaining the ballet to you and that's yeah. a pretty funny one too. I hope your mother's got a sense of humor about this. What does mom think of all this?
0: Luckily my mom is very normal and she thinks it's very funny. Now the downside of having like a normal funny mom is that it's usually would not be funny to put into a story. So I have to create this exaggerated, absurd mother. Hold thing. on, Normal, hold on. Didn't read? Yeah, she was she's a, a clown. clown. She was she was like the coolest clown. She wore <laughs> she didn't she you know she she did she was like came out of the hippie movement. So mm-hmm. she was a birthday party clown. She sang folk songs. No one she played games, but everybody won the games. You know, it was a very she was a kind of Marxist clown.
1: Now, do you like to do any readings, Jesse Eisenberg? Sure. Because because there's a couple that uh, that uh, we could do the camper one. We could do the one about the where's one you about like. picking up the woman at the bar. I mean, do you have one you like to read
0: from? Sure. But no, Give anything you like, anything you'd like. Well, can we... Re- do you mind if you read, no, if you, you can, can you read from this little
2: separation anxiety? Yeah, sure. The end is the best. It's all great. But here's Jesse Eisenberg reading a little piece of this
0: separation anxiety sweeps... Uh, Sleepaway camp. Sleepaway camp. Yes. camp. Go ahead, so, Jesse. Yes, and it's, a, it's the itinerary. So at 8 a.m., campers begin the day with an early call to mom. Those campers who have wet the bed will have an opportunity to change clothes, or if they prefer, to remain in their soiled pajamas, as the warm stench of their own urine may be more comforting and remind them of home. At 9 a.m., breakfast is served in the main dining hall, though most campers will choose not to eat breakfast, as it is hard to eat first thing in the morning because the day hasn't started yet, and this thought is mortifying. Those campers who boldly choose to eat will be given pancakes in the shape of their names, which will remind them of home and likely cause indigestion. At 10.30, it's swim time. Campers will swim for seven minutes in a shallow wading pool with two lifeguards per camper. Campers will wear pre-inflated floaties on their arms and legs and around their necks. And after swim, campers will have an opportunity to call their moms and let them know uh, that they have not drowned. If the camper has drowned, mothers will be notified by the counselors in training, or CITs, and then the counselors in trainings will have an opportunity to call their own mothers. At noon, it is lunchtime. Campers will dig into one of mom's prepackaged lunches. Campers are encouraged not to read the enclosed notes until after the food is digested, which will be difficult as the thought of the unread note just sitting there will be unsettling. Following lunch, campers are given a free period in which they may read the notes from their mom. If a camper has not received a note from his mom, one of the counselors in training, or CITs, will forge a note and pretend it was lost in the refrigerator that housed the camper's lunches. Attempts to match mom's handwriting will be sincerely made, although complete accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Now, from 2 to 3, campers will be given a free period where they will have one hour to explore the campgrounds, kayak on nearby Lake Winooski, build a campfire, or write a postcard to their moms. Calls to moms are also possible during this time. (laughs) So wait, can you stop there for a second?
2: Yes. What well, I have read about you a lot uh, in recent times, and people, what I read, I don't even know if it's true. You don't go see your own movies. You yeah. don't like seeing yourself. Why do you appear to be so comfortable reading what you wrote? You seem. I was watching you. Cl- you seem to be totally fine doing that and enjoying it. He's why an is actor. That o-
1: reading no, his why line. is that
0: okay? But watching yourself and the work you did on the screen is not okay. Well, I would be uncomfortable, like hearing this interview for example because you know you criticize your own voice and i don't know what my voice sounds like you know it's like when you hear yourself on the well maybe not you guys because this is your business but when you hear yourself on an answering machine or something you cringe um uh i don't think people have answering machines anymore so actually i don't know what the <laughs> i don't know what the modern day equivalent of, of that would be but um i love being like in the character it's a character you know you're playing a guy who's reading an itinerary even if you know if the character is like me um and that's comfortable because i can hide inside of that idea. But then, you know, watching yourself, you know, you're suddenly exposed.
2: Is this part... I mean, I also read about you're, you're an OCD guy,
0: right? Is that is that true? I, I don't know if
2: that was exaggerated for humor or if it was real.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I probably have, you know, similar amounts of you know obsessions that other people have.
2: and how do you but you do for those who don't know and i'm embarrassed to say i didn't know you had done as many things i know you as an actor primarily yeah. we read this book we were laughing out loud you've oh, written thanks. plays you, yeah. how do you do all this i mean how do you get through the day and accomplish as much <laughs> crap as you i mean you do so many
0: things it's stunning jesse eisenberg uh, oh thanks a lot well um i sometimes those are the things that are the easiest to get through the day for example like uh, performing on stage is a nerve-wracking experience, but I always think of, like, it's probably the second most scary experience, and the first scariest experience is staying home at 8 o'clock and not doing the show, you know? <laughs> so, like, those things are distracting in a kind of, in a, in a way that's a relief.
1: Now, I don't mean to pick on you, Jesse Eisenberg, but I think Jim was being a little bit too kind. You talked about having these OCD issues. Now, I don't think everybody is like this. Let me just read what you said about yourself, that I don't, you don't step on cracks, that's not so unusual, and if I'm going onto a new surface, carpet to concrete or concrete to wood or wood to concrete, any new surface, I have to make sure all parts of my feet touch equally the ground before I touch that new thing. Now,
0: I... <laughs> well, when you put it that way, I sound, <laughs> I sound crazy. Yeah.
1: Well, it does sound like you may have a few issues going through the day, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, did you, you, you? this is new carpet when you came in here, but you look pretty... Good coming in here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Most of the time, I'm like distracted from the, the that's those good. kind of things. Okay, and that's good. That's why I stay so busy. Yeah. Because you know, <laughs> once you slow down, then you start noticing there's so many different surfaces on the ground that need to be accounted for. Did you
2: see Spotlight, You don't see. Did you see Spotlight, the movie about the Boston Globe's uncovering of oh, no, the no, sex abuse? No, no. You know, the reason I ask you this is because we all saw you in the Social Network, right? And we all saw you. Uh, we believe this is real. Meet Mark Zuckerberg for the first time <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. Was that that was true? Right? Was that the first time you <laughs> met him? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So the people in Spotlight. Tell the story and we've interviewed the reporters and they all say that with the exception of one lawyer, Mitchell Garabedian, they worked incredibly closely with the actors, oh, wow. playing them from Michael Keaton to Rachel McAdams to uh, the whole, to, uh, to who's the star of the thing who plays uh, Mike Rezendez, who's brilliant. Oh, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo and all those sort of people. How did you do, I mean, everybody who saw it, who knew Zuckerberg said you nailed him. What did you do if you didn't know the guy who you were portraying? What did you do to get there?
0: Um, There are certainly no shortage of, you know, video clips of him. And, uh, I mean, the people who did research for the movie found incredible things like his, you know, application to college. And I read that and I saw that he had uh, taken fencing lessons. So I took fencing lessons to see kind of what that would feel like. And then it made me stand up in a kind of more unusual posture. And so I used that. So I tried, you know, when you're playing a real person, it's fun to be able to kind of – steal as much, you know, uh, as you can from their lives. Were you and then-
2: nervous to hear what his reaction was to your portrayal?
0: Yes, but only because I didn't want him to be upset that, you know, I could imagine it's the most uncomfortable thing, especially a guy in his mid-twenties. They make a movie about your life and you're not, pre- you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a hundred percent flattering perspective. It's kind of more real take on a situation. And I could imagine that must be really uncomfortable. So I was nervous only insofar as I didn't want him to be upset. But I wasn't nervous to think if he, you know, thought my acting was, you know, great acting.
1: How did you like that breakup scene at the beginning of the movie when Mark Zuckerberg was a total and complete jerk breaking up with that Girl, Or she was breaking up with him. I have it backwards.
0: Yeah, I mean, as an actor, all I could say is that, like, I'm sitting there thinking I'm right. You know, as a character, you're entirely defending your character. You know, there's no way to see a role from the outside and objectively say, this guy's doing the wrong thing. No, you're inside of it as an actor and defending him. That's We're the talking. voice
2: of Jesse Eisenberg, his new book, which is spectacular. Bream gives me hiccups, just wildly funny, page after page after page. You're in the new uh, uh, Batman and Superman deal, and you played Lex right. Luthor. Yeah. Well, as a person who doesn't watch movies, and you talked about <laughs> how you research the Zuckerberg role... Uh, some legendary people. Right. Uh, Kevin Spacey, one of the greats of all time. Do you watch House of Cards? Tell me you watch House of Cards. Uh, I don't, but I'm aware of it. Oh yeah, my gosh. Sure okay, so I'll a, catch up on it. I'll Kevin Spacey, Gene Hackman
0: yeah. uh, played Lex Luthor. Do you see them do what you're about, what you did, or do you just. No. It can be kind of distracting to watch other actors do it because, you know, the thing about acting is you're using yourself. So if I were to kind of, uh, you know, watch them and try to mirror it, I think it would probably look odd just coming from myself. So how'd you prepare for this? Read comic books? What'd you do? I read the comic books, but I think the main main and most valuable preparation is to think about all of the feelings that I have that overlap with that character's feelings. So, for example, my character in the movie feels that one person, Superman, has too much power and is a threat to society because he has too much power. So I try to think of experiences that I've felt that way you know if I've had a boss who I feel you know has too much power and exploits his workers or if I feel there's an injustice in the world that you read about you know political dictatorships, you feel that way. So I tried to use all of those feelings and my own kind of personal rage and then channel it to that character. And that's the way the character will be most authentic and I think most interesting.
1: So what's the source of your own personal rage?
0: <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> for, for a different time and with fewer microphones.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just want to read a couple more of these, uh, these titles from these little short uh, pieces you've written. This is a great title. A post-gender normative man tries to pick up a woman... At a bar. Mm -hmm. It is very, very funny. Oh, thank you. Marv Albert is my therapist. How do you feel about Marv Albert?
0: Oh, I love him. And, um, you know, he's been like you know, one of my favorite, you know, social, uh, you know, media icons since I'm young because I grew up a big basketball fan and yeah. so I wrote, um, so I was listening to him during a game once and I thought, oh, it would be funny if he, if his kind of utterances were kind of appropriated for a therapy session, something that should be very sensitive but here he's screaming like, you know, two seconds left and I thought, oh, that would be a kind of a funny appropriation so um, I wrote that and then um, he read it and called me and asked if we could record it together so we did a recording of it and uh, he's just been really friendly and, uh, you know, kind of a now a a friend.
2: Even though Marv Albert is one of the great sports guys ever, broadcasters ever, when you close your eyes, do you not see him in the underpants? I mean, the women's (laughs) underpants thing? I mean, that's hard to... I mean, I I don't even mean that critically. Obviously, he's recovered from it. He's resumed his career. He's great. But is that hard to not do, or (laughs) No, not
0: for me, because I grew up... You know, I was probably young when I... I know what you're referring to, of course, but I was... You know, that was not part of my consciousness as a kid. And, um, no, I mean, to me, he's like the voice of basketball. Probably always will be the voice of basketball in 40 years when he's no longer doing it, I probably will still hear his voice.
1: So just the iceberg, I know you did some uh, commercial work when you were a kid uh, uh, and got into acting. I suppose that way you were very young. But how did you get into, like, grown-up acting? How'd this, how'd this all happen for you?
0: Yeah, I did, like, children's musical uh, musical theater when I was younger. And then, um, you know, when I was about 15, I started uh you know going into New York City I grew up in New Jersey and auditioning for plays and I really started liking theater and then started kind of finding what I liked about it as an adult and now you know as an adult I kind of still am figuring that out you know you're figuring out what you like about it what you can excel in I like writing plays and performing you know in theater and I find you know because there's so many avenues in the arts uh um, I find that I'm constantly finding new kind of interesting avenues that I never explored.
1: And how arduous was it to get the uh, Mark Zuckerberg role? How, much, how long did that take and how many auditions? Or was that easy?
0: Yeah, it's always like the kind of really great roles that seem to come easily and then conversely are, you know, a role that you think, oh, this would be good to do but it's yeah. not like, you know, life-changing that you've got to go in for a thousand times. Um, so that, I made like a, you know, a five minute tape in my apartment uh, uh, with my sister and I sent it out and they called me the next day saying, oh, yeah, they want you to do the movie and come out to California. So it's it's always the case, you know. And then similarly in the Batman Superman movie, which is like to me, you know, just like such an honor to be able to be in that movie it was a similar thing. They just called me and said, No, we'd like you to do this part. So it's always the case.
1: So Jesse Eisenberg, Jim's been asking about a lot of movies you haven't seen you said you haven't seen some of these things or these Netflix things and stuff like that. But that's partly because you're so busy, I understand, fostering all these cats. <laughs> what's, what's that I think, about, please? I think
0: that might be a dated Wikipedia entry. But oh, yeah is no that
1: a dated Wikipedia entry. I grew entry? up
0: with animals. I live with cats, but I, I did. I fostered cats for a while, and I guess at the time, whenever I mentioned that, it was such an unusual thing to be doing. Yes. Yes, I was like a revolving apartment for cats, so they would come in briefly until they would get adopted. And
1: you're not doing that anymore?
0: Well, no, because now I have permanent cats, so, you know, they, the how permanent did you ha- cats. How would- did you I only have the one at the moment. There are several other cats that are kind of, let's say, nominally mine, but they're in various homes. Speaking of Netflix, did I read somewhere,
2: when Marjorie mentioned it a minute ago, did I read that this book is on its way to Netflix, or am I wrong about that?
0: Um, yeah, no, Amazon options some of the stories here. So that's oh, like Amazon. in the early stages of the, yeah development. With the and two. What are you, you going to write them, or what are you going to do? Yeah, so I, I would write them, and um, since I've, I'm so close to these stories, so there's like the title character in this book is about this kind of sweet nine-year-old boy who goes to dinner with his mom, and uh, yeah, so I would write them. I love this character. I've been writing him for a few years.
1: Yeah. So you wrote about, in one of these stories, I forget which one it was, about the, um, oh, it was no, it was the one you started, the camper thing, yeah. about writing all the letters to mom, but <laughs> but dad didn't get many letters, and we weren't really interested in talking to dad. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Was that the Jesse Eisenberg dad, or is, is no, dad No, insulted? no,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just in, like, the kind of, like, comedic archetypical parents, you know, it's the mom is this very overbearing woman and the dad only talks about sports. Yeah. But that's not – that was not my life. Uh, but in the book, there are occasionally, you know, fathers like that. But that, again, is just the kind of funny uh, opposite, opposite end of the spectrum from the mom who's, you know, the doting, overbearing, you know, edible-creating mom.
1: So be- besides Woody Allen, who's the writer Jesse Eisenberg – Write like who do you, who your, who I would say your my main influence
0: is? Um, Tolstoy, probably. And if, really? you, if you read the book, I think it, no, 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 no. I mean, I, goodness, uh, but, um, <laughs> I
1: thought you were serious, <laughs>
0: and 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 I, I'm sure a lot of people do. I, I mean, thought Tolstoy
2: look. when I read him, too.
1: I yeah, to yeah,
0: exactly. first yeah, 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 yeah. Well, There's great characters there, great characters, yes, exactly, and but, but no, bre- uh, but brevity, um. Yeah. um, um well, let's see. Writers who I love, uh, uh, like George Saunders, Miranda July, are great short story yeah. writers. My friend Simon Rich uh, is a great short story writer and writes in a similar style as this. Um, and he's a contemporary, uh, Teddy Wayne, Dan Kennedy. These are. It's funny because actually um, uh, uh, there's a guy who, who lives here, uh, Chris Monks, um, who runs the McSweeney site. And, mm. I um, don't know him. M-O-N-K-S? Right M-O-N-K-S, so yeah. 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 And that's where I started writing for. And to me, they, they have like the greatest writers on a daily basis writing really great what is us. that again? Uh, this is McSweeney's.net. McSweeney's dot yeah.
2: net. We had the editor of uh, uh, New Yorker on with us the other day because they had started I don't know if you know, they're doing this radio thing around the country it's the New Oh, okay. was the New Yorker on radio? New I Yorker was in radio New whatever. New Yorker Radio Arrow, thank you very much. And the look on your face suggests the answer to my next question is to whether or not you're part of that at some point, Is you don't even know about it at this point. No, is wasn't that right? Oh, well, that'd be a good thing. So before you, before you, could you pick another one? And do you mind doing another
0: sure, short reading sure, sure. for us before I you we go? think we also
1: had to find out the, about the title. Bream gives me hiccups.
0: Yes, sure. Now let me ask: Should I finish reading? Sure. The Do you mind thing? doing that? Yeah, sure, sure. You can sure, pick sure. whatever you want. It's yeah, your anything. Book here. I may as well finish yeah, when we trash
1: dads. <laughs> right.
0: Okay. We'll get to that. Um, okay. So let's see. Let me think. Um, yes. We, yes, 4 p.m., we follow free period with an afternoon call to mom. At this point, campers may also ask to speak to their father, but this is strictly optional. Most likely, dad will not have time for the camper, or if he does, will likely talk about himself or how stressful work is or how well the camper's sister is doing in her sports camp. If dad is spoken to during this period, campers will be allotted 20 additional minutes to debrief with mom, where tissues will be provided. At 5.30, campers may choose from a variety of electives, including show and tell, where campers can present a relic from their home or their fel- uh, to their fellow campers, who will likely not be able to focus on something from someone else's life, as this requires a level of interest in others that campers did not possess during periods of great agitation. <laughs> campers may also choose arts and crafts, where campers can draw family portraits, wherein the mother figure is unconsciously drawn much larger than the father figure, who will likely have an X drawn, again unconsciously, through his face. We will also be featuring a new elective this year called Lamentation Period, where campers are given free time to reflect on their relationship with their mother, and lament the futility of life away from home, and the terror that accompanies leaving the house. Fears of college also also, be prematurely contemplated during this time. At 7 p.m., dinner is served in the main dining hall. Campers are encouraged to eat freely as the day is almost over and they are one day closer to being home. Though it is optional, campers may even enjoy themselves briefly and, if desired, experience the slightest amount of relief that they are now a few hours closer to going home than they were at breakfast. At 9 p.m., it is lights out unless a camper would like to stay up all night and call their mom. If this is the case, a call to mom is possible at this or any time. If the camper chooses to sleep but then has a nightmare, a call to mom is allowed and encouraged. If the camper chooses to sleep but wakes up before his bunkmates, the camper may call his mother. If the camper chooses to sleep and makes it through the whole night without a call to mom, he will be escorted home by one of the counselors in training, or CITs, to apologize to his mom for being so aloof. Counselors in training will be made up of campers' moms. Okay, Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg, Eisenberg. I have one question great.
1: before you go. How long did you really make it in camp?
0: I made it for six hours. I that went was... for one day. Um, I made it for one day, and a kid tried to drown me on my first day of oh, camp. Oh,
1: no. Seriously, I
0: have one memory from camp, which is that I was on the bottom of the pool looking up while this kid was staring at me face down, lying on top of me at the bottom of the pool. And That's... I was just thinking, oh, this is how I died. That's Oof. interesting that I died this way. So... And then I called my mom, and I got to cry.) <laughs> Mom
1: came and picked you up. Yes. I hate oh, to try to one-up
0: you on camp, but
2: yeah. I think I can do it. Please. I went to Camp Anabar. You know yeah. how they got the name? Yeah. It's Rubino backwards. Okay. Camp okay. Onabar. I went to Camp Anabar in upstate New York. I was voted most improved camper. Now, you may say that's a pretty good thing, but yeah. you know what's really horrifying? What? I was voted most improved camper two summers in a row. How pathetic <laughs> yes, is that? Yes, yes, yes. must have started at a very low <laughs> exactly bar. Exactly my point. <laughs> right. Jesse okay. Eisberg, your book is spectacular. Thanks, Thanks so much so for much, your time. Right. Yeah, thank you very much. We were talking to actor-turned-writer Jesse Eisenberg about his fiction debut, the book titled Bream Gives Me Hiccups and Other Stories. Up next, Salman Rushdie is here to talk about his latest foray into magical realism. That's 89.7 GBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just joining us, you've landed in the middle of the writer's room. Back to back interviews with some of our favorite conversations with authors, which includes the one we had with Salman Rushdie about his book, Two Years, Eight Months, and Twenty Eight Nights. Gee, Salman, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, oh, I'm glad I made it. Oh, so I am we. too.
1: We're very sorry you got stuck in traffic. So uh, tell people, congratulations, by the way, Salman Rush, you've gotten wonderful reviews uh, for your new Thank book. You. So tell people, it's kind of a, well, you correct me if it's kind of a magical realism f- f- fantasy kind of thing, I think. But tell us if I'm wrong yes. and, what the, and what basically the story is here.
7: Well, it's uh, the simplest way of telling the story is that it's a, a kind of war of the world story. It suggests that there's this other world other than ours where, where there live these fantastical creatures who we've come to know as genies, but the real name is the jinn. And they attack, they invade this world, and then at least one of them has world domination schemes. But set against that is... Uh, Actually, the main female character of the novel is actually also a Jinn, Jinn princess, who, who loves human beings and actually loves one human being in particular. And she comes to the defense. And there was a moment halfway through when I suddenly thought, Oh my goodness, I think I might be rewriting I dream of Genie." <laughs> <laughs> one of the great works of literature, would you not acknowledge? You know, I mean, it was a moment, (laughs) but I think that the the people in my book are so they're definitely not like Larry Hagman and Barbara Eden. So I think I'm okay.
1: Well, you've talked a lot about how you love science fiction as as a kid, but this is such a hugely imaginative kind of thing. I mean, how do you think these things up?
7: I don't know. This is I'm afraid. I'm sorry to tell you. This is the nonsense in my head. And this is what comes naturally to me. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are some people for whom, um, you know, social realism is, is what comes naturally. For me, this, uh, this crazy stuff is what seems to show up when I sit down to work.
2: But it doesn't just come out of your head. My understanding is the character who opens the book, and by the way, your publicist only got this to us last night, so we've both just begun Ooh. reading this thing so you can chastise them, is the book opens right, with a that. philosopher from, what, eight
7: 900 years ago, after yes. whom you are named. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's right. This is a famous 12th century Arab philosopher from the... From the from Spain, from Cordova in Spain, the period of the, the Moorish um, rule in Spain, called Ibn Rushd, who is known better known in the West as Averroes, great Aristotelian philosopher. And yeah, my father admired his his thinking so much that he changed the family name to Rushdie, to, as in you know follower of Ibn Rushd. My grandfather wasn't called Rushdie; it's my father's invention, and it's because in his time he was. A very progressive voice, I mean he was somebody arguing for the values of reason and logic and tolerance and science and and against blind faith and and rather strangely, given what happened to me, he was also persecuted in his time, and he had his books burned and sent into exile and so on and so he seemed for you know obvious reasons kind of attractive to me so he starts the book off, and actually, he's the person with whom the Jinn princess falls in love.
1: Well, we'll get back to the book in a second, Salman Rushdie, but since you mentioned what happened to you, many people know you, uh, not just for your uh, novels and your writing, but for the, the fatwa that was issued against you many years ago and was reissued mm-hmm. last year. Explain that to people, please.
7: Oh, well, no, I mean, really, you have to, you know, there's occasional rhetorical noises, but really this thing has been... Not a factor in my life for a very long time now i mean it's it's been i mean i 've lived in New York for almost sixteen years, and it 's been perfectly normal really but in fact, what happened to me, whatever it now is twenty six years ago that attack is now a much more general attack you know i mean now the threat from uh from fanatical religion is something not just aimed at one novelist in his book. And in a way, that's where this this the vision of this War of the Worlds comes from. It's about um, a war between not just between genies and men, but between the forces of reason and unreason, between the between the the rational and the irrational. And uh, you know, I think that's something which we which we're living through.
1: And between reason and faith as well, right?
7: Well, one of, well, many of the genies are not at all religious, but one of them gets uh, gets, I'm afraid, infected with fanatical religion, and sees it as being useful. I mean, he's more. It's more that. It's more kind of cynical use of religion than actual faith.
2: You know what just happened to me? Uh, I was listening to you and Marjorie speaking, and I, a quick thought flashed into my head, and I said to myself, "He sounds exactly like Salman Rushdie." It's unbelievable. <laughs> But uh, we're talking to Salman Rushdie. You know, Salman, I, I, I would like to say that uh, literature was my strong suit when I was in school. It was not math was my strong suit. When you were talking to Marjorie, I just did the math. And it appears to me that two years, eight months, and 28 nights happens to come out to 1,001. Is that correct?
7: Yes. You see, you worked it out. That's, it, that's, that's not the yeah. clue.
2: That's not coincidental, that's the,
7: obviously. That's not coincidental. That's the clue that, that tells you what kind of a book it is. I mean, it's really that i feel that that you know whenever it was 16 years ago i arrived in new york with all these sto- stories in my in my baggage and i thought you know maybe i'll unpack those stories and throw them at manhattan and see what happens and that's that's basically what i did so, you know, it's, I, so it's an yes it's an arabian night story but it takes place in contemporary new york you know I, as i said i only got the book last night and so i read 10
2: pages here 10 pages there i came i hope i get this right i came upon yeah. i think a gardener i think i'm right yes. who it's suspends awesome. yeah. uh, uh, that him or herself, what about an inch or two himself. or a foot or something? Himself, yeah, he off the ground.
7: Why not fly? What what is the what are well, you saying? Because, because well, what well, first of all, to be half an inch off the ground is as great a, a, a destruction of the law of gravity as being twenty five <laughs> feet up, but it's it's funnier. It is fun. It actually, <laughs> fun. if you say so yourself, it's also, it is fun. And it's also, kind of, it's also kind of sadder because the idea that, you know, he's a gardener. He's a very sweet man. He's like in his 60s. He's spent most of his life loving and nurturing the earth um, and the things that grow in it. And for such a man to suddenly discover that he's somehow come detached from the earth, you know, it's a, it's a hard fate. And it creates all kinds of, you know, logistical problems. How do you drive a car if you're half an inch off the seat. <laughs> you know, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. I have not thought of that angle. I haven't
7: thought. Yeah, well, we, you've got to take it literally, you know, you think about it. What would happen?
1: I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't want to think about that part anyway, but we're talking to Salman <laughs> Rushdie, whose new book is Two Years, Eight Months, and Twenty-Eight Nights. By the way, just for the people that don't happen to know, the Scheherazade, I, I hope I pronounced it right, that I remember from yes. when I was a little kid, the quick story of how she uh, lasted for 1,001 nights. Well, tell the people, that's I mean, a great. It's the,
7: beautiful, it's the beautiful frame story of the Arabian Nights is uh, Shahrazad is this woman who is – well, she marries a, 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 a really dreadful king who has – to get his revenge on the female race because long ago his wife was unfaithful to him. He's been marrying and then deflowering and then murdering, of executing a virgin every night of his life for several years. And she volunteers – to marry him because she thinks she knows how to solve the problem and the problem the way she solves it is by beginning to tell him stories but she never finishes the story at the end of the night she always there's always a cliffhanger finish and so he can't bear to have her executed he has to wait for the rest of the story she always finishes the story in the middle of the night starts another one um, and that goes on for a thousand nights and one night and she not only does she save her life but she does something more remarkable she kind of civilizes him by the end of the story he's a much he's you know he's no longer a mass murderer and he's become a better man you know and it's so this wonderful fable about the power of stories to to civilize even barbaric tyrants
1: it's a great, it, it, it is a great story. You know, um, uh, and one, a lot of us remember hearing from our parents when we were little kids, which makes me very nostalgic. Uh, as as Rushdie, there's, um, there was a divide when Charlie Hebdo, the French uh, satirical magazine, got the prestigious Penn Award after it was uh, running all these cartoons. People, of course, remember the the, the staff members were, were murdered uh, by people that were fanatical in their, in their religion, and that uh, they won an award for their cartoons. It was controversial because Some people thought that they were ridiculing Islam and that this was one step too far. You were on the side that Charlie Hebdo deserved the award. Uh, But now there's another controversy involving their satirizing, uh, making cartoons out of this child, this three-year-old child uh, that was drowned uh, trying to escape from from Syria. Um, Where are you on that one?
7: Well, it's just another misrepresentation. I mean, anybody who actually looks at the magazine and looks at the cut can see that the people being attacked are the people who were being, uh, you know, closed minded and against uh, the, the taking of immigrants. It's not an attack on the poor little dead kid. And this is just how